Do you think only food that you are familiar with is worthy of being called food? Are you neophobic or a food explorer? We speak with Krishnendu Ray of New York University about these questions. It's on tip of the tongue. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Krishnandu Ray, Associate Professor of Food Studies at New York University. Most recently, he's author of The Ethnic Restaurateur, among many, many other writings. So welcome, Krish. Thanks a lot, Liz, for having me. So before we start talking about the topic of your recent article that appeared in the Indian Express, I want to find out how you got to food. You have a a master's degree in political science and you have a PhD in sociology. How how did you get to food? Because everybody has a a really crooked path to food. In fact, I came to the U.S. with a very narrow focus on studying development of underdevelopment, which was this idea that uh, a couple of my professors, Emmanuel Wallerstein, James Petras, Giovanni Origi at SUNY Binghamton were working on this uh, idea that underdevelopment, uh, because I was coming from India, underdevelopment is not a function of being left behind, but in fact, underdevelopment happens because other parts of the world are developed. So this was called, sometimes called uh, dependency theory, sometimes called uh, development of underdevelopment. So that's the only place I applied. Uh, In grad school, I was coming out of mostly a Marxist, Marxist kind of a point of view, teaching in Delhi University as a lecturer and as an a student. So I came to the U.S. and the, uh, and went to SUNY Binghamton, uh, got a fantastic education, uh, and from my professors and my colleagues for the first time in my life, we're from everywhere in the world, uh, a colleague from Afghanistan, one from Namibia, one from Chile, I had never studied with people extensively. So that was kind of the most brilliant part about American grad school. Uh-huh. And I was doing my work, and uh, of course, I was assaulted by nostalgia. Nostalgia expressed itself via food. And uh, I realized two things. A, to eat Indian food, I had to cook Indian food in <laughs> SUNY Binghamton mostly, in Binghamton, which is a small working class town in New York. Uh, and uh, the second part was even more startling. I had done a lot of trade union politics, student politics, progressive politics, but I had never thought about the fact that I had spent my whole life, uh, this was at that point of time, 20 some years, I was about 25 years old, um, that I had been fed three meals a day and had not never thought about who were doing the cooking and who was doing the feeding. So that was, a, in spite of a very progressive politics, I was startled by my total blindness to my privilege as a South Asian male, middle class in this particular case. Uh, And so I was so assaulted by nostalgia on one hand, but on the other side, 
I was saying, wow, um, uh, what's out there about cooking and feeding and care work? And I'm totally unfamiliar uh, with it. Uh, let me uh, familiarize myself with it. So that for me was the beginning of the drift towards uh, food and work and care work. And then I stumbled sequentially into books in my professor's home, Giovanni Origi's home, Jack Goody's book, uh, Cooking Cuisine and Class. Um, and then I think it was, uh, I think it was Laura Shapiro's book, the book she wrote on uh, the cooking school, uh, uh, Perfection Salad. Uh -huh. And uh, so Giovanni Origi and his uh, partner were, uh, used to host these uh, evening events, all these international students from all over the world. And we used to talk about mostly political economy of development and underdevelopment. But that's the first place I tasted homemade pizza. I tasted grappa and I stumbled into books about food and cooking and my mind was already shifting towards it. And then I went and uh, I, I read Jack Goody's book and then I read, I think, Harvey Levinstein's Paradox of Plenty mm -hmm. and uh, Laura Shapiro's book. And then, then I learned and realized that Levi Strauss had written, Mary Douglas had written um, anthropology. I so read all this up and then went and talked to my advisor saying, I'm really not going to uh, write on development and uh, development, but I'm going to write on food practices of immigrants into the U.S. What change, what changes, what doesn't, how does it matter? Yeah. So that's how I uh, kind of went to food. Okay. And did you actually learn to cook during this experience? Totally. This is when I learned to cook and I've never stopped cooking since then. Uh, I've kind of raised a family subsequently, learned how to cook, cooked very badly initially uh, because I got excited about things like I would do rice and dal and a sauteed green vegetable, which are kind of quite forgiving because mm -hmm. of white range uh, and kind of soupy dals. All, I mean, Indian food is rich with these dals and uh -huh. legumes. Uh, and relatively easy to make. You finish it with a very Indian style uh, of cooking, which is you add fat at the end on top, which is called uh -huh. sometimes called tarka, sometimes chomp. In Bengali, it's called chomp. Uh, and uh, so that that was that was good, and that was uh, relatively easy to learn. Uh, but I, what I screwed up repeatedly were cooking uh, proteins, especially chicken, because I had never cooked a such huge chickens and so much fat. But I was tempted to make them grill them because in India, for middle class, lower middle class people like me, a piece of grilled chicken was the height of affluence, you know, like a tandoori chicken. In college, I would go out with my friends and we would have a tandoori chicken. And tandoori chicken is probably the only form of chicken in which it'll be a whole roast chicken cooked mm -hmm. in a tandoori. Mm -hmm. So, of course, I was trying to wrap up that because partly chicken was uh, much cheaper here relative to my income uh, oh. even as a grad student uh, fellowship but of course I didn't know how to grill so and these were huge fatty chickens so they will they would get typically burned on the outside and stay raw on the inside and oh, uh, yeah. I didn't have the good recipes and at that point of time this is I'm talking about early 1990s uh -huh. um, the internet was not as extensive. We were not that familiar uh, with it, with recipes. So it was a mess. Uh, so I would get the rice, dal, and the vegetables correct and mostly screw up the chicken numerous times before I started <laughs> figuring out 
cut them smaller, cook them lower heat, and, uh, and then finish it and all those kinds of things. And we also didn't have the right grills. Um, right, but right. we tried, we it tried. <laughs> so my friends would come home uh, every night, every evening we cooked. And uh, uh, some of it badly, some of it well. And they would get uh, spirits and uh, beer and we would cook and argue about all the things we had read and, uh, and then uh, eat. And then next day we go back to school, go to the library, then go to class. I had a fantastic education. Uh, and, and you were learning about all everybody else's food too, right? Exactly, in the process, right? As I said, an Afghan friend and a Namibian friend and a Chilean friend, and of course, uh, two Jewish American friends uh, in, in the cohort, a Colombian friend, and we were an Ethiopian friend, Abiy Asafa. And he, for the first time, I'd never had Ethiopian food. And he cooked uh, Ethiopian food in our home and at his home, um, at Florence, Swiss food. It was astounding education. Yeah, it sounds it sounds wonderful. Just exactly what graduate school is supposed to be, <laughs> um, because yeah, you certainly learn as much from your colleagues as you do from the professors and all of that. Yeah, that's wonderful. I had a yeah, I had a professor, uh, Terence Hopkins, Professor Hopkins, who was an Africanist, and, <clears throat> and he said um, he told me almost like in the first week, he said exactly what you said, Liz, which is. Um, 80% of what you're going to learn, are you going to learn from your peers. 10% mm -hmm. you're going to learn from books, 10% you're going to learn from professors. I was like surprised by that ratio. I said, really? I thought I came here to learn from all of you professors. He says, yeah, but you really learn from your peers. And I, I now looking back, the amount I learned from my peers, uh, directly what I was supposed to learn, the British knowledge, but then of course, real life knowledge, like in this case, cooking and caregiving and cleaning and all that stuff that I did with all my grad school friends. Right. So let's talk about Gene Weingarten and his article. So for those people who may not be aware, Gene Weingarten is a humorist writer for the Washington Post. And he wrote a column in August about foods that he wouldn't eat. And he basically, well, Chris, why don't you describe the article? Yeah, and I'll describe the context also. I mean, uh, sure. as you said, Gene Weingarten is a, he's a humorist, and he wrote this uh, column about things, I think it said something like, uh, things no one can make. Right. Uh, and he had things like some, kind of, some vegetables, some fruits in it. Uh, he had bad, he, what he called garbage sushi. Uh, but then he said Indian food, all Indian food. And, and one of his arguments he gave is that it's an astonishing cuisine because all kinds of dishes are made out of one spice, he said. And he called that spice curry. And then subsequently, someone in the staff corrected it. There was a correction soon after that says that, well, curry is really not one spice, but in fact, it's a combination of spices. And of course, in reality, every household can have a different combination of spices from curry. Mm -hmm. Of course, when I first read it, it, it was kind of it was badly written and idiotic um, uh, to identify the cuisine of a billion people with more regions um, than, uh, say, Europe. And uh, how do we know that? We know that because there are more languages in South Asia uh, than in Europe, uh, and in fact, the scripts are more different. So wherever there is a language, there is a cuisine, uh, typically. 
So to, to talk about this cuisines, multiple of uh, South Asia, specifically India, and say it's based on one spice. It's like, let me see what the analogy would be. If I told you, well, I dislike wine because it's made from one grape. Okay, so it's exactly that kind of an analogy. He would never say that, uh, partly because he's probably more familiar with it. Right. So, but anyway, initially I thought, uh, well, it's a humorist. And so it was not, not particularly good humor, so I should ignore it. I ignored it for the longest period of time. But I think uh, eventually it got to me and I sent out some tweets about spices and the role of spices. And then someone reached out to me from the Indian Express saying, uh, your tweet has been retweeted a few thousand times. And you now have, I think, what, 6,000 followers or something. Would you want to elaborate on what you said in your tweets about spices and the role of spices in European history, in Western history, and in India? So anyway, so that was the point of departure, why I eventually wrote this piece about what I thought about Gene Weingarten's piece. What's interesting about it is, I think, twofold. It's almost... Do you want me to elaborate on my Oh, please. Yes. Yeah. I'm just listening to what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a caricature. Uh, in some ways, a very ill-informed. The example, the idea that all Indian cooking is made, uh, has one spice in it. Did it's you, certainly ill-informed. Did you ever think that um, he was purposely making himself into the buffoon about it and it, maybe he's not quite as ill-informed as he portrayed himself could be uh-huh. it, it would have worked if the correction wasn't made the correction they scampered quickly realized that the correction and the co- correction was saying well we know really that spice is not uh, curry is not one spice but a spice mix uh-huh. which if it was it was let me make a buffoon of myself by taking an extreme position would have been a lot of fun and uh-huh. it, would have played a role, interesting role, but the eagerness to correct it was saying that he, in fact, was really uh, uninformed about right. it. Right, <laughs> he really uh, believed so, what he was saying. Yes, yes, that was that, that was astonishing to me because I didn't think anyone today, you know, in twenty twenty one, thinks about Indian food is based on one spice and even curry, you know. But and he was the other part of. He, I think, in, in some ways, he's a bit like the figure of a joker, right? Uh-huh. Where uh, by exaggerating, uh, he and the, what, what I found interesting about this piece is that by exaggerating, he was, in fact, touching a nerve. And for me, that was the interesting part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so what what do you think, then, it means? So I think that's the nerve he touched, which is what uh, what I saw in his piece uh, is it's a form of culinary prejudice where we may be ill. It's okay to be ill-informed about some cuisines, mm-hmm. say Ethiopian or Somali or say, uh, in this case, Indian, but it's not okay to be ill-informed about wines, for instance. I mean, if, I, if he had, you would have written uh, wine, uh, I don't like wine because it is made from one grape. And anyway, what is wine but rotten grapes? Like my mm-hmm. mom thinks she's not a wine drinker, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the joke wouldn't have worked. It wouldn't have worked because it didn't, uh, it doesn't uh, touch on this kind of 
of prejudice, which he in fact represented. That many people in some ways think that there's a great range and variety of uh, tastes and flavors and palates in French cuisine, in Italian cuisine, and especially in new American cuisine. And recently, I would say in the last 30 years, Americans have come to recognize that about Japanese food too, that it is subtle, it is sophisticated, it, they know there's sushi, they know there's uh, uh, noodle soups, they know there are all kinds of cuisines, kaiseki, et cetera, et cetera. But it is still okay to be quite ill-informed about a continental scale, in this case, Indian food. Um, and it, it, even as an exaggeration that felt absurd. And I, I'll tell you in this particular case why I make a particular distinction. He's, for instance, he says, he doesn't say he doesn't like sushi. He says he doesn't like garbage sushi. That's different from saying, I hate bad Indian food that tastes all the same like cumin. I have eaten a lot of bad Indian food uh -huh. um, in the marketplace, with this, which is oily and uh, too much cumin in it, uh, uh, one dimensional. So there's a lot of bad Indian food as, as there's a lot of bad sushi and there's a lot of bad American food. Uh, one could make a very interesting argument about it. But the fact that he could say, he uh, uh, said that about Indian food and not about, say, Japanese food reveals what I think is a larger uh, point that I have made elsewhere. Um, and the book you referenced, uh, which is the ethnic restaurant for, talks about it, which is what I call a hierarchy of taste. Mm -hmm. um, do you want me to elaborate on it? A please, bit? please. Yes, this that's hierarchy. what we're talking. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. So by hierarchy of taste, I mean that how over different periods of time in American history, American tastemakers, which is commentators, uh, critics, uh, humorists, uh, have considered some cuisines to be high class and sophisticated, and some cuisines to be uh, low class, uh, unsophisticated, disgusting. Uh, and th that view is slowly changing. And by the way, a good example is Italian food. Italian food today, of course, uh, everyone thinks it's the one of the best food in the world. It's sophisticated, it's subtle, it's regional. But you should be, if you read Americans writing, American commentators, not Italian Americans, American commentators writing about Italian food from the 1880s, you have the largest number of Italian immigrants coming in between, say, 1880 to 1924. Mm -hmm. But Americans are writing, commentators are writing into the 1960s how. Italian food is greasy, oily, garlicky, olive oil is so greasy. And of course, all this leads to craving for alcohol. And that's why Italians drink all this alcohol. And that got associated with the prohibition movement at the end of the 19th century. So if I can interrupt you for a second, I can uh -huh. give you some a personal anecdote about that because on my mother's side, my family is totally Sicilian. And they came to New Orleans, straight to New Orleans, because that was a big Sicilian immigration point. And my grandfather and my grandmother in particular would constantly complain just, you know, in, in their remembrances of how people would try to stop them from eating tomatoes and things like that, as though tomatoes was gonna, were going to make them, um, they said that it was too much of a sexual stimulant. And if you had too much garlic, you know, this was going to make you like a crazy person. And 
that when they would kind of ignore the advice because they thought that the people who were telling them this were crazy, um, they then they were you know portrayed as ignorant and unwilling to accept higher authority and all of that sort of thing. And I mean, I was always lectured to don't don't let anybody tell you what to eat, you know that kind of thing. So it's a, it's a lovely example. It's a lovely example, especially in Louisiana. And remember, I mean, lynching there uh, happens uh, and Italians are lynched, right? right. Uh, and so, you know, so it's, so I call this a matrix of class and race. It's not just color. It's color no. is important, race is important, right. but right. class is important and how people are classified by what yes. class and what race. And Italians, I mean, I, why I raise this example is today people naturalize it. Think, of course, Italian food is great. But that was not so natural until almost into the 1960s. And mm -hmm. high-end high Italian restaurants don't start emerging extensively. There are some exceptions. Into the 1970s, 1980s, you know? And so and, my argument in this book, sorry, go ahead. No, and even in Italian restaurants, it was the Northern Italian restaurants with cream and all of that sort of thing that were fine restaurants. And the restaurants that were from Southern Italy were the second-class restaurants still. So they, there's even within the country, Absolutely. there's this, that you know, still there has to be a hierarchy, you know? Yeah. You know what a lovely example there? Uh, uh, listen to the author of Pinocchio, who is Northern uh, Italian, talking about pizza, mm, uh, Sicilian pizza. He calls it grimy, greasy, uh, and uh, I mean, it's street food. And so there, there are these hierarchies which are also regional and often, in, in this case, Italian. And by the way, there was attitude towards German food like that when Germans started coming in 1840 uh, onwards. And again, uh, until about 1924, uh, there's these uh, really exquisite pieces in the New York Times where these um, journalists are going and eating in a German restaurant and then describing weird things like a schnitzel and uh, and that they eat potatoes and they also eat pasta. It's very intriguing and it's like coarse, heavy bread. Uh, and all of this served by obviously German looking uh, waiters. Okay, right. So these kind of people appear. So if this is, a, is it like a constant American story mm -hmm. is the story of disdain towards the food of new immigrants and especially poor immigrants, working class immigrants. You can see that against the Irish too happening. So anyway, this, so the, uh, what I point to is, is how this hierarchy of taste has changed over time and how things have moved up in the social hierarchy. Mm -hmm. This is part of this matrix of class, race, and new immigration that shapes <clears throat> American hierarchy of taste. So my, my uh, work is on um, A, what is that hierarchy and what proof do we have? And, and B, how that hierarchy changes over time, who moves up, who moves down, uh, why. Mm -hmm. And I can talk about that. Yes, both yeah, those please, things. yes, keep going, yeah. The Italian examples, by the way, uh, Italian food uh, uh, aspects of it are already popular, popularized amongst American elites during the uh, American Revolution where macaroni and cheese, in fact, becomes part of the repertoire, the American repertoire. But the prestige of Italian food, and I think it was Paul Friedman, in one of his articles, talks about uh, how 
like for instance, Parmigiano Reggiano is highly estimated mm -hmm. uh, in the 18th and the early 19th century by some parts of the elite, but the prestige of Italian food plummets as poor Italians start coming. Mm -hmm. So my argument is in fact that it is linked to the prestige of a cuisine is inversely linked to the class structure of the so if poor working class migrants are coming in from a region, it is very difficult to upscale that cuisine in the eyes of American commentators. And we see that repeatedly with Irish immigrants, with German immigrants, with Italian immigrants, and then we get closer to our times, Greek immigrants. And of course, in our times from post-1965, you would say Chinese immigrants, the way we think about cheap Chinese food. Mm -hmm. And many Americans still are hesitant uh, to pay $100 for Chinese food for one person, and they are willing to do that for French food, um, for yes. now upscale Italian food, mm -hmm. uh, new, if you call it new American cuisine, uh, and you can even charge more than 300 bucks for new American vegetarian cuisine. Right, uh, exactly. And Madison <laughs> uh, and, um, and so, uh, so it's in, in some ways, so this, this pattern of hierarchy, and my uh, big argument there is it, it has some relationship to the class and race of immigrants that are coming in. Their foods are, are disrespected. The immigrants themselves, of course, keep eating it, thankfully. Don't follow the advice of uh, school teachers, nutritionists, social workers, commentators, eventually restaurant critics. They keep eating it, eating it, eating it and slowly it seeps out into the rest of the social world, happened with Chinese food, uh, happened with Italian food, uh, happened with German food, uh, and they slowly climb up as the class, uh, as the group of people whose food we are talking about climb the class ladder. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of my big broad argument and I illustrate it with a number of examples. And then I have a specific example, I take, uh, Zagat's uh, 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 review of mm -hmm. restaurants. Uh, I had data, quantitative data. Zagat starts from 1979, first time, 79 it is published. Uh, I couldn't get my hands on the published copies. Uh, the first copy I got was from 1986, Library of Congress. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. And I did uh, up, up to, I, when I wrote this book, which got published in 1916, I, sorry, uh, 2016. 2016. Yeah, 2016, I got this data. So 1986 to 2016. So it's about uh, so 30, 35 years uh, time period. And you see a couple of things. Uh, French cuisine, um, Americans are pay, willing to pay uh, uh, substantially higher prices for French cuisine, which is predictable. Continental used to be prestigious like that. It's kind of disintegrating as a category. New American was coming up. Japanese had climbed up dramatically mm -hmm. over that 30, 35 uh, uh, year period. And the two other fastest climbing that your listeners might be interested in were uh, Greek and Korean. The data showed that Greek, Korean, some elements of Vietnamese cuisine were also climbing very fast. Mm -hmm. um, and then there were at the bottom of the pile was Thai and uh, Indian uh, and Chinese. Uh, and used to be soul food, for instance, but that's also has been changing uh, mm -hmm. dramatically. So here coming back to our discussion with Dean Weingarten, you see that Indian food in, in that hierarchy of taste, where like most Indian restaurants in New York, there are about 
just before the pandemic, there were about 350 Indian restaurants. Most are relatively cheap curry houses. About 10 to 15 Indian restaurants are upscale or some of them upper mid market, you know? And, um, and even Floyd Cardos used to complain uh, in even Tabla. Mm, uh, eventually they closed Tabla because every time a recession hit, their uh, Union Square Hospitality's French and Italian restaurants will do fine. The Indian restaurant Tabla would totally crumble, demand will crumble. So in, when push came to shove, even a fantastic place like Tabla, an imaginative smart place uh, could not totally transform the prejudice about hierarchy of taste, that uh, unfamiliarity with the cuisine, like Gene Wine Gardens, the fact that it's based on one, one spice, that which is, is not. Uh, and, uh, and so that's kind of one aspect of it. Uh, though uh, Tabla, I would say, eventually changed uh, uh, American perception uh, of uh, what could be a range of uh, Indian foods and regional Indian foods. And we are, we are seeing, and maybe this is where I'll, I'll stop by saying, that we, we are, I think, in the middle of the next great transformation in American taste, where spices uh, are coming back in interesting ways. Of course, mm -hmm. we know sriracha, we know especially uh, peppers uh, and various kinds of peppers, uh, which Mexican cuisine is fantastic at, and aspects of it. <clears throat> Mm -hmm. are making us familiar. And I think young professionals uh, uh, and uh, new cohort of people are emerging, which is transforming the American palate again. I see this as the next big transformation over the next 20, 30 years. And right now it sounds contentious, partly because it is changing uh, and it's transforming. And uh, for me, Jin Weingarten's piece was also an example of someone who had obviously not kept up with this new transformation. So yeah. he was using prejudice as a form of humor mm -hmm. uh, for a transformation in American palate that he had not kept, kept yeah. up with. So he came across as mostly outdated. Yeah, he did seem um, to be like behind the times. What do you think the influence of television and someone with a, a, a good personality that that has a lot of enthusiasm for their own cuisine can often, I think, influence the way Americans who watch a lot of television um, perceive the food and their willingness to try something that they might not have even known about if it hadn't been introduced by this kind of person that has the very telegenic personality. Do you think that's an influence? Totally. And I think it's, it's good and positive and interesting. And I don't feel, um, I don't, uh, Americans, a lot of younger Americans, especially, I saw that at the Culinary Institute. I taught for a decade at the Culinary Institute. I was the dean of the liberal arts program. Uh -huh. Eventually, uh, I saw the students excited by Iron Chef. It was a Japanese program, quirky. But you know what was attractive about that? Ingredients and skill, uh -huh. especially and associated with masculinity and a kind of a celebrity presence. I saw that at the Culinary Institute. Of course, we saw that with the French chef. Americans learn cooking from television and now the rest of the world is also learning. In India, I'm right now in India and uh, there are endless number of TV programs and people do learn uh, from television. And the great Canadian theorist of uh, media, Marshall McLuhan uh, had predicted <clears throat> how in fact television 
would make cooking a much more attractive uh, form of cultural uh, exchange uh, because it, it's, it's much more uh, tactile, it's much more visual. Of course, we still can't smell anything, but we can see and we can hear. Uh, and that is very, and it does not need skills of reading uh, and writing, right. which is what most cookbooks are and, and had been, which are elite productions. So television has played a crucially important role. And of course, television depends on uh, celebrity personalities. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and you can see that. So the other program that was very uh, uh, exciting for my students in the Culinary Institute uh, and the book eventually also, Kitchen Confidential, uh, which yeah. is that kind of a kind of a, a approach to it, which is fantastic writing, uh -huh. but, a, but a very attractive, charismatic, masculine personality right uh, and uh, so uh, yes uh, and that uh, has been one of the modes by which americans in fact have expanded their horizons about different kinds of cuisine uh, mm -hmm. and uh, you see that uh, in a whole number of programming in including of course american uh, domestication of french cuisine with, with the French chef, Julia Child, of course, and that being the celebrity of celebrities of it, uh, both doing pedagogical function of teaching Americans, but teaching Americans through a show that was interesting and exciting. So yes, uh, the tele television and now social media, I think plays a very important role in teaching people how to eat, what to cook, and in expanding their horizons. Uh, so cuisines come all over the world. One of the things that I think about Julia Child versus this sort of masculine skill set that somebody like Anthony Bourdain represented is that that that's one thing that that's one thing. But what Julia Child did, and I think it was because she was a woman, uh, she also made it accessible and doable so that if she drops her chicken on the floor, she picks it up. She doesn't have this perfect ability to chop so well. I mean, not that she didn't have great knife skills. I'm not trying to say that, but she um, she was accessible in a way that perhaps some of the, the showmen of Iron Chef might not have been. And that was a difference, I think, between a man and a woman presenting. Yeah, of course, gender plays a crucial role, and it's and that's linked not only because they're men and women, partly because what men and women are doing. Even now, in spite of all the conversation and all the watching about food, most of the cooking at homes is done by women. Right. Almost everywhere in the world, uh, and uh, so the, a woman's attitude towards cooking is going to be different, and especially if it's everyday cooking, than spectacular. Right. Uh, and which can be, and the spectacular cooking can range from the barbecue, which is very masculine, but traditional to spectacular cooking like the Iron Chef and Iron Chef America and the Bourdains, etc. Right. Uh, or spectacular work, I think, shapes the aesthetic of a program. Right. Well, thanks so much. This has been a whole lot of fun. And uh, bye-bye. Thanks for being with us. Thanks a lot. Liz. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue. We come to you from the Camellia Bean Studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, part of the Nitty Grits Network. For more information on today's podcast, 
join the Tip of the Tongue podcast group on Facebook. Please come by when you're in New Orleans and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like it, let us know in the comments. This is Liz Williams.